everyone. Welcome to Pod Academy. My name's Craig Barfoot. How good are you at knowing what other people are thinking? Do you really know what other people think of you? And why do we commonly make so many mistakes about the minds of others? Today, I'm talking to the distinguished social psychologist, Professor Nicholas Epley, about his book, MindWise, how we understand what others think, believe, feel, and want. Nicholas Epley, thank you very much for talking to me. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me here. Nick, what questions did you want answered that led you to writing this book? Well, there's, there's no other thing on the planet you'll encounter that's more complicated than other people. So this is one of the things we spend a huge amount of time doing in our daily lives, thinking about why other people want what they want, what other people believe, what other people think, what their motivations are, what their goals are. We're all mind readers. And the fundamental question that interests us is, how do we do this? How is it that we think about the minds of other people? Their minds are not actually visible. You can't see an attitude or touch a want or hold a belief. And yet we reason about these things all the time. How good are we at doing this? And how, how do we do this in the first place? Yeah. In your book, uh, before you launch into the problems of understanding the minds of others, you, you first really look at the problem we have of understanding our own minds. Mm-hmm. Why is it so hard to understand your own mind? Well, a lot of it happens, as psychologists have known for a very, very long time, beyond the reach of conscious awareness. Conscious Consciousness is really like a movie screen where you can see what's up on the screen and you can report what's up there, but you can't really report on how it got there. So you can't, when you're sitting in a movie, explain to me how the movie projector works or how the display projects this digital image up on the screen, although you can tell me quite well what's actually on the screen. And we trip ourselves up when we ask ourselves questions about our own minds that are essentially akin to asking how does the projector work in a movie rather than what's showing on the movie screen. That's where we get ourselves into trouble. Nick, the, uh, the idea that we believe we know much more than we actually do about, about our minds and also about other minds is, is, a, is a constant theme yeah. in your book. I think that's actually the, the big problem um, in social life. The problem is hubris thinking that you understand another person much better than you actually do. Consider a very simple experiment we ran recently where we asked people to predict what their spouse believes across a series of 20 different questions. These were questions that were pretty wide-ranging, and for each question, or each statement really, you responded uh, on a scale that went from one to seven, one being completely disagree with that statement and seven being completely agree with that statement, with the other numbers in between being intermediary responses. These questions included things like, I think our family is too heavily in debt today, or if I had it to do over again, I would sure live my life differently, questions like that. And we had 20 of these, and what we did was we had one member of the couple sit in one room, and we had the other member of the couple sit in the other room, And in in one room, the couple just answered each of these questions. To what extent do you agree or disagree with all 20 of these? And in the other room, that person predicted what the other person would say on all of those 20 questions. Now, out of 20 items on a seven-item response scale, you'd get about three point, or you get about three, uh, 2.8 actually, out of 20 right just by chance alone. Our couples predicted 
the other person's response is better than chance. They got about 4.9 correct by chance alone, which is also a little bit better than you do with a stranger. But notice it's not hugely better than chance. The difference between 3 and 4.9 is not all that big. But the interesting thing was we also asked the predictors to say how many out of those 20 they predicted correctly. And they predicted not 4.9, which was the number they actually got correct. Instead, they predicted 12.6 on average out of 20 correct. So couples thought they knew their partner far better than they actually did. And I actually think that's the big problem in social life is believing that we understand other people far more accurately than we actually do. We'll come back to this idea in a minute. Uh, But first, there's a really interesting statistic uh, in your book that only 15 to 20 percent of U.S. soldiers in in World War II were able to discharge their weapons in in close fighting. Yeah. Can you explain this for me? Yeah, that's a stunning, stunning set of figures. And it's not just from World War – from the World Wars. Um, It goes back a long ways. The surprising thing about – conflict is that people have a hard time killing each other. That's less true today, but historically that's been very true. So in the Civil War, for instance, you could, those, the, the muskets that they used at the time were actually quite accurate. You could hit a pie plate at 100 yards, which is pretty darn accurate. You could kill a man at 100 yards with one shot pretty reliably. But at the Battle of Gettysburg in the Civil War, men would stand 40 yards across and they would fire at each other for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours, and hours on end missing each other. And they, it looks also like they weren't able even to pull the trigger. So at Gettysburg, they found all of these muskets that were left on the battlefield that had multiple bullets in them. It looks like people just weren't able to pull the trigger and get their fun, gun to fire. One, uh, one, one muzzleloader, in fact, had 33 bullets in it. Just couldn't pull the trigger. Why is that so hard? Well, It turns out when you see a man in front of you, there are lots of reasons, even when it's the enemy, that you automatically empathize with this person. You see this person as a a human being, and it's just very hard to pull the trigger and kill that person unless you've really, really had it drilled into you or you've been trained uh, very carefully to pull the trigger under those circumstances. Being within sight of somebody just triggers all of these automatic empathic responses um, that we have that make it hard to really do severe damage to somebody. Now, that isn't always the case. There are unbelievable atrocities committed on the planet, but killing is much harder than you might imagine it to be. And so war machines have gotten much better at enabling people to kill because what they've done is they've disabled some of our empathic senses. In particular, they've moved people much further away. So now people are killed uh, from trailers sitting in Nevada using drones where they never actually see the whites of anybody's eyes. It looks more like a video game. So none of our empathic senses are triggered there, and that's mostly how killing is done today. But that wasn't how it was done historically. And historically, it was very hard for people to kill each other. Nick, another quite astounding part of your book is when you talk about the fact that until the 1990s, infants regularly underwent surgery without any anesthetic. What the hell? Yeah, I know it. I was I was shocked to see that too. That's an example I mean, of the of when the, you say re, when you say regularly, how widespread was this? 
Well, as far as I know, it was quite widespread. I don't. I believe it was standard practice to perform surgeries, circumcisions, for instance, for sure, without anesthesia because the doctors believed that infants couldn't feel pain like adults did. And that's that's the other that's the other part of the story I was telling you a moment ago. Our ability to think about the minds of others is a is a great gift that our brain has given us. It's the thing that really makes us uniquely smart on the planet. There's no other species on the planet that uses this ability like we do. But there are some glitches, and this is one. One of the glitches is that we don't always turn it on and engage it when we ought to. So when somebody seems quite different from us, um, quite distant from us, you know, we can't see them, they're not right in front of us, we, we can't see the whites of their eyes, or they're psychologically very distant from us, very different from us, like an infant is. Infant is not the same as an adult. The tendency is to think of these agents as not really having minds like you have. And so we can very easily, but very subtly, dehumanize them. And the doctors thinking that infants couldn't feel pain, I believe, is one of the subtle examples of this kind of dehumanization where you think of agents who are different from you, not just being different from you, but being lesser than you in some fundamental way, and in particular, having less of a mind than you do. That's the essence of dehumanization, and that happens when we don't trigger our ability to think about the minds of others uh, uh, directly. Okay, then I'm I'm interested then for you personally writing this and, and knowing this, how you equate that to the minds of animals? Well, it's a it's a complicated issue, and there there are two issues. One is whether certain kinds of animals um, have minds like ours, have human like minds or not. And that's a question really about science. What are the mental capacities? And that's something that, that science can, I think, help us to answer. The other question is about when do we think these non-human agents have minds and when do they not? For me, this is a very personal issue. Um, I grew up in the Midwest, um, about three hours to the west of Chicago in, in Iowa. I grew up all of my extended family were farmers. We grew up out in the woods, uh, and I grew up hunting and fishing with my dad like pretty much any rural kid does. And so the question that you're always faced with when you're in the woods is, are you taking the life of a, of a sentient animal? And in some ways, I think, in fact, the data suggests that, that we, we are. That is, that non-human animals may have certain kinds of human-like mental capacities that could surprise us. But it's also the case that we attribute often more minds to non-human agents, more human-like mind than we ought to. So there's some interesting data about who tends to anthropomorphize non-human animals more. Is it rural kids or is it urban kids? And it turns out that urban kids are more guilty of anthropomorphism, thinking that non-human animals, pigs, cattle, and so on, have human-like emotions and feelings and beliefs and attitudes and such more than rural kids do. That's because rural kids have more direct experience with them. They know a little more what they're capable of doing and what they're not doing, whereas urban kids don't have direct experience with them, and essentially what they do is they project their own mind onto these animals. So it's a complicated answer. One of the reasons why I still hunt very personal answer to this. One of the reasons why I still hunt is because I do believe that 
many of these non-human animals are capable of thinking more than, than, than not at all. And so that makes me very sensitive to the kind of animal cruelty that you see on factory farms where you have animals who live a life under horribly cruel conditions. Uh, there's, a, there's a quote you use in your book from the author David Foster Wallace, and I really like it. Uh, the quote is, you will become way less concerned with what other people think of you when you realize how seldom they do. <laughs> Why did you use this quote? What, what does this quote illustrate for you? One of the mistakes that we make in thinking about the minds of other people is that we rely on ourselves too much. That is, we assume that others think and feel and believe what we do. That's a problem of egocentrism. And it, it's, a, it's a problem that creates a gap in how I predict what you're thinking and what you're actually thinking. I just assume that you're like me more, in fact, than you actually are. And one of the big problems that this creates in social life is far too much anxiety. You are at the center of your own life. You're always paying attention to yourself. You're always present wherever you are present. And that can create the illusion, the illusion that psychologists refer to as the spotlight effect, that other people are simply paying much more attention to you than they actually are. You're not the center of other people's lives. You're the center of your own life. And so you can relax a little bit. I think the most liberating experiment in the entire field of psychology is one that was done by my PhD advisor, Tom Gilovich, and two of his graduate students at the time, Vicky Medvek and Ken Savitsky. And what they did was they brought people into the laboratory and they had them go to an adjacent lab room. They started off by themselves. And when, when you arrive for this experiment, just imagine that you were in it for a minute, um, they gave you a T-shirt. And they asked you to put this T-shirt on. And so you're slipping this over your head. And as you're pulling it over, you see that there emblazoned on your chest is a great big picture of Barry Manilow. Now, it's possible you're a Barry Manilow fan. That, that could be. But most university undergraduates are not. So this is a rather embarrassing thing to have now tattooed on your chest. The experimenter then takes you and walks you down the hallway uh, and sits you into another laboratory room where you're supposedly uh, beginning the experiment. You then sit down at this table. There are a bunch of other people sitting around the table, and you start filling out questionnaires. Uh, the experimenter, just after a moment, then, then comes back and says, you know what, you've started a little bit late. Let's, let's have you do this later. Uh, why don't you come on out? Um, and so you're taken out of the room. And at that point, the experiment's actually over. What you're asked to do is you're asked to predict how many people in that room will be able to identify that it was Barry Manilow on your shirt. You're given four different options, and you just say, what percentage of people in the room will choose Barry Manilow out of these four options? And the finding was that people thought about 50% of the people in the room would be able to identify that it was Barry Manilow on their shirt. Of course, you're very aware that you're wearing this embarrassing figure on your shirt. What percentage of people in the room were actually aware? It looked like, frankly, nobody. It is nobody was able to identify this at better than chance levels, or I should say the average of the group was, did not pick Barry Manilow at better than chance uh, levels. It doesn't look like anybody paid attention. So I think David Foster Wallace's quote worked really well to describe this basic message from social psychology, which just suggests you're not the center of other people's world, and so you can relax a bit. I, I just think this is the most liberating message uh, in the entire field. Other people don't pay so much attention to you, and when they do, they cut you more slack than you might think that they do. So relax. Yeah, that, that, is, a, that is a really nice experiment to remember. Um, 
Uh, Nick, uh, someone reading your book, uh, the title of your book, Mindwise, How We Understand What Others Think, Believe, Feel and Want, uh, someone reading this title would, would probably think that a large part of what you talk about is, is body language, but it, it, it isn't. No, it's not. In fact, when I was writing this book, I had people routinely, so I, I would tell people I'm writing this book about mind reading, and they usually thought I was writing a book about body language. And it does feel like body language is important, and in, in some ways it is. But it turns out to be much harder to read than you might imagine. So it's very easy to misunderstand body language. Um, the cues that we give off to our beliefs, about our beliefs through our body language, aren't nearly as clear as you might imagine. Beliefs about subtle emotional expressions coming through in micro expressions or subtle bits of body language that you can pick up just don't seem to be that well supported by the evidence. And what's more, there's no evidence at all that getting training and reading body language actually makes you better able to understand anybody, frankly. So body language seems like it's really important. And, and I think I don't, and I don't have the empirical goods on this, but I think I know why people believe it's so important. Um, when it's in fact not. And the reason I think goes back to this egocentric bias that I described to you just a moment ago with a spotlight effect. So one of the other phenomena that comes out of egocentrism um, is the belief that not only are other people paying more attention to you than they actually are, but also that other people know what you're thinking more than they actually do. So when you're lying, for instance, you know that you're telling a lie. And it can feel like that intention or that, um, that fact, that mental fact, is therefore more transparent to other people than it actually is. Because you know what you're trying to say, what you're trying to communicate, that you're not in fact telling the truth. It can feel like it's leaking out of you, that you're giving off all of these cues, much more in fact than you actually are. So the belief in the power of body language resonates with our experience that when we, in fact, are out there in the world, we're communicating ourselves quite clearly that our bodies are giving off our thoughts or beliefs or our emotions. It feels like when we're sad, it's just totally clear on our face. In fact, it's not. Tears of sorrow and tears of joy, it turns out, to a naive observer, look pretty much the same. The only way you know the difference between the two is when the person tells you what they're feeling. That's it. There's no, there's no magic in that. There are some interesting experiments by Alex Todorov, a psychologist at uh, Princeton, who looked at whether you could detect whether somebody was, after a tennis match, had won or lost the game, just by looking at their face. And it turns out you can't, just by looking at their face. You can get better by looking at their body, right, by what their body is doing. But if you ask them, did you just win or lose, you would never get it wrong. So body language has this, has this quality where it does communicate some information, just not nearly as much as we think. And it's very easy to misread and to misunderstand. And training just doesn't seem to make you systematically better. And another technique that you maybe surprisingly say doesn't really work is that old adage of picturing yourself in yeah. someone else's shoes. Yeah, that turns out to be harder to do than you think as well. So if you've never been poor, trying to put yourself in somebody else's shoes doesn't necessarily make you more accurate. 
In fact, it can make you less accurate. You might exaggerate the differences between you and somebody who's living in abject poverty, assuming that they have very different kinds of motivations or beliefs or wants than, in fact, you might have. There's no reason to think that putting yourself in another person's shoes actually makes you more accurate. And in fact, when we ran a number of experiments recently to try to see whether actually putting yourself in somebody else's shoes makes you accurate, more accurate, better able to understand another person's emotions or to predict your spouse's beliefs when you try to put yourself in their shoes and imagine what it's like to be another person. We have found over and over and over again, we now have conducted more than 20 experiments on this project alone. Over and over and over again, we find, in fact, it does not increase accuracy. If anything, it makes you less accurate. We actually find at times it decreases accuracy. We have never found a case where it systematically makes you better. Because you're still relying on what you know about the other person. No matter how you try to shift your vantage point, it doesn't seem to increase accuracy systematically. The only way you would is if you got new information, stuff you didn't know before. Then you'd be more accurate. And the way you do that is not by trying to read them better. That's prone to distortion. You also don't do that by trying harder to put yourself in their shoes. Yeah, that's uh, that's where I guess I'm I'm heading to is is your conclusion. What what does work? Uh, what what is the secret to reading other people's minds? Is asking them is the simple truth. I, it kind of ends on a flat note in some ways, perhaps, but that's just the truth of the matter. You don't understand what it's like to be another person unless you're able to simulate them. That is, you're actually able to be them for a while. The old adage that you can't judge another person until you've walked a mile in their shoes is absolutely right. The problem is we forget it over and over and over again when we're actually in the midst of judging other people without having walked in their shoes. So judges, for instance, are charged with trying to decide whether something, whether some activity constitutes torture or not. They're charged with figuring out whether waterboarding is, should be considered torture or not. They've never actually experienced it before. So they seem to forget that old adage, and we all do all the time. But if you can't be somebody, if you can't actually be in somebody else's shoes for a while, you can't know what it's like. You can't, you can't be poor for a month or half a year to see what that experience is like. Then how do you do it? You ask other people, and they tell you what their experience is like. Now, that sounds easier than it actually is. It sounds like, well, if I just asked you a bunch of questions, you'd tell me a bunch of nonsense and BS and I wouldn't learn any better. And that's right. People who are really good interrogators, for instance, criminal interrogators, learn how to ask questions in ways that elicit honest answers. It won't be perfect. People can't always tell you what's on their mind and they won't always do it honestly but it's the best bet that you have. Nick, it's been a, a real pleasure speaking with you today. Thank you very much for taking the time. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Professor Nicholas Epley is the John Templeton Keller Professor of Behavioral Science at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business. He's also the author of the book, MindWise, How We Understand What Others Think, Believe, Feel, and Want. And I'm Craig Barford, the guy that was talking to